Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to break into Hebrews chapter 7, and we've gotten a few um, uh, previews of this topic. Melchizedek has come up a couple of few times in Hebrews already. The author seems pretty excited about this topic. Uh, he's, he really thinks Melchizedek has a lot to tell us. So as we get into it, we've got to do a little catch-up and find out what he's thinking about. Now, as I study chapter, the first part of chapter 7, the first 10 verses, I'm actually not going to cover the lessons that our author is going to get into. I'm just looking at the story of Melchizedek and his meeting with Abraham, and I'll, I'll give you a few, a few little snippet previews, but next week we, we should be studying out and fleshing out what all lessons the author of Hebrews has in mind for us. So as I start on Hebrews, I'm actually going to skip and take you to Genesis. Go ahead to Genesis chapter 14. So how's that for a switch? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. You'll find the account in uh, verse 17 right through verse 20. And if you really want to get the full gist of it, you'll have to start at the beginning of the chapter. But it's not too long of a story, and it's pretty amazing, actually. Um, the way the story goes down is it's first uh, it's a big war gets started. They are some, some kings, probably from the north or eastern area, probably even as far as Babylon. Uh, it, some names seem to refer to the Babylon area. A whole collection of kings had uh, some, some, they had to do a, what they say in Spanish, an ajuste de cuentas. In other words, they got to go and, you know, you didn't pay your taxes. We're, gonna, we're here to charge. We're here to collect. So... They had an alliance, and they came, and they, they, they took care of business um, on the other side of the Jordan River. As they were in that Transjordania area and that valley sweeping through, they came all the way south, kind of near the Negev Desert, and then they kind of came back and says, hey, we're here. Let's start raiding. So they turned the whole campaign into a raiding party as they're going back up north on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're now in that, in that valley of Sidim as they come up, and they're going to come up on, on Sodom and Gomorrah and a whole collection of towns in that area. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they, they gather a crowd together and say, hey, we got to, this is, this is, you know, abuse of power. Who do they think they are? They put a war together, and they came out to meet them. Well, they got, they got whooped on. It didn't go so well. In fact, the king's started running off and and the king of sodom and gomorrah they ended up falling or hiding or just conveniently disappearing into some tar pits that were in the in the area so like hiding in caves because the war had gone so badly and these guys went straight into the cities they looted everything they took what they wanted they took captives they took people and they marched on north their their campaign was not in any way stopped by the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the whole collection that they'd put together. And as they've gone through Sodom, well, Lot and his family, his daughters and his wife and, and, and belongings had gotten swept up in this campaign, and they were part of the captives that were being towed along as, as part of the loot and part of the baggage of this campaign, this war campaign. News comes over across the mountains over to uh, the, the Philistine-ish area where, where Abraham would have been. And uh, Abraham at the Oaks of Marmara, he hears about this and says, oh man, we got to do something. 
So he puts his men together. 300 and a few men. It's ridiculous. It's like, what, what is he thinking of doing? There's five kings and their armies up there, and he's got 300 and some men. That's just not going to cut it. He brings a few more allies in from, from neighbors around, and they head on up north. They go all the way up to the northern side of what becomes Israel later on, the, the area of Dan, north even of the, of the Lake of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee. So they're way up there in this northern territory, and that's where they finally come upon them at night, and they plan this as a commando raid, and they get in there, and they, they scatter the camp, they mess the place up, they totally rout the armies, scatter them around, and Abraham comes back as the big hero. He pulled it off, he did the campaign, he did the planning, he marched through the night, did a perfect execution, and with the Lord's blessing, he comes back victorious. He takes all the plunder, everything that had been collected by these kings in their raiding, and he's marching back the procession. And as they come down south, and as they come down into the valley um, where it kind of forks off, and you can go either down to, down to um, the Jerusalem area or you can go down into the, uh, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah area, the Valley of Sittim in that area. As he comes to that divide, two kings come out to meet him. Two kings show up and meet Abraham, and that's where the, the passage there picks up in uh, chapter 14, verse 17. This is what it says there. Of course, the wind is helping here. It says, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, I think, and, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And then the king of Sodom tries to negotiate his own share of the loot. So that's it. There's no more to the story. That's Melchizedek. And Hebrews is going to make a big deal out of this. And I think there's, there's good reason for that. That's it, though. Hebrews, the author in Hebrews is fascinated with Melchizedek, and I think he's probably studying the Bible. He's probably studying his Old Testament. He's found a few things that are interesting, especially in Psalm 110. And he's going to quote that for us. Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is stuck in the author's head. And he says, just a minute, this means something important. This is something that we need to pay attention to. What is the order of Melchizedek? How does that work? Who is this about? Well, this is a messianic, a messianic psalm speaking of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. So, in his mind, he says, what kind of Messiah is coming? How do we recognize him? Well, there's the order of Melchizedek involved, the priestly order. Um, again, he's, he's fairly fixated on this 
as he looks at a messianic kingdom in view, he's looking for a Messiah that is both king and priest. And as you go back into that Old Testament, you say, yeah, he's a king and he's a priest. So this is, this is uh, an identifier. This is a way that you can recognize the coming Messiah. Uh, I mentioned that he had brought up in the book of Hebrews already a few times this Melchizedek thing. And it's there in chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, he mentions the priestly order of Melchizedek. Um, and then again in, in, in chapter 6, verse 20, he says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah is going to fit both roles, the role of king and the role of priest. Now this would be entirely unique. This would be a side of Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, Jewish history. It has never happened. Now, you had King Hezekiah. He tried, as a king, he tried to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. Well, that didn't work. He came out with leprosy. That was punished. And he was reminded, no, you can't do that. The, the priesthood belongs to the Levitical tribe. You are from the tribe of Judah. You don't cross these lines. The order of Levi, the order of Aaron cannot be changed. You can't jump in just because you're a powerful king. So he was denied access. He was not able to do that. And so what this author is saying, there's another order. There's another kind of priesthood. It's the Melchizedek kind of priesthood, not the Judah, I'm sorry, not the Levi Aaron kind of priesthood. So he picks up on this text and he's going to make quite a bit out of it. Um, in the in the the 620 passage, Hebrews 620, it speaks about Christ being an anchor. He's become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but he's gone into the temple. He's become an anchor. He's become the connection between us and the Heavenly Father. And we know that. That is awesome. That is what we thank him about all the time. We remember Christ more as a priest, probably, than we remember him as a king. We don't really do the kingdom thing. Not too much. But as a priest, we remember him. We see his priestly uh, work for us, his sacrifice for us. We, we, as, as, Jew, as Gentile Christians, we see that aspect. But the Jews... The Jewish culture is also looking for a Messiah king as well. So this is kind of a neat thing. So now let's look into Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, having reviewed a little bit of what's on the author's mind, we've got a few verses to read here. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he, is, uh, he abides as a priest perpetually. 
Let me just hold it right there and review some of what our author is interested in. When he looks at this priest king, Melchizedek, and he's going to put the parallel right next to the Messiah, the priest king, he's going to make a few points. He, first, he takes a look at the name, and he says, look at the name. This guy, Melchizedek, his name means something. His name means um, king of righteousness. Apparently, Melchizedek has enough Semitic roots in it um, to attach to what Abraham's language, uh, Semitic language, would have been at the time. And he can tell that his name means king of righteousness. And then he lives in the city of Salem. Well, probably Jerusalem or very close to it. It's a root word again. So he's the king of Salem or even Jerusalem. And that's the king of peace. And he says, see that? See the righteousness and the peace? And a lot of other things are firing off in, in, in his head as he says, look, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And you go back through the Old Testament and you go even into the New Testament and we find the connection between righteousness and peace, justice and peace. And we find this connection over and over again. Um, this king of peace and this king of righteousness. In Isaiah 9, and I've actually printed it out so it would be a little faster. So Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 says this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and here it comes, Prince of Peace. But it keeps going. It says that there will be no end to the increase of his government, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and it brings up the two points, righteousness and peace. If you go to the Proverbs, you'll find righteousness and peace. If you go to the Psalms, you'll find righteousness and peace. Um, it usually follows, see? It's, it's, there's a logical concept there. If you want to have a peaceful government, you've got to have fairness first. You've got to have righteousness first. If you want to have a classroom that behaves and doesn't scatter everywhere, you've got to establish the plain rules, and you've got to have fairness first, and then we can have a peaceful classroom, a peaceful environment for learning and whatever other productive activity we want to have. If you don't have peace, you can't have production. You need to get to peace, but to get to peace, you need to have fairness and righteousness first. It's just a natural sequence of things. And here we have a king who's coming to put down first righteousness and then establish peace. And then can you imagine the production and the prosperity that's going to follow? Because those are the natural sequence of how this progresses. So he's pretty excited about that. Uh, we can see some of that in the New Testament as well. Romans 5.1, and this is on the spiritual end of things, not on the kingly end of things, but on the priestly side of it, we also have, well, let me read it for you. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How about it? First, we have to be justified. First, things got to get squared up. First, the, the, the playing field has to be fair 
justified, and then we can have peace with God. It follows in the spiritual as well as in the governmental, the, the kingly scene. So these two things work together very nicely. So that's the first observation that he makes. His name's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. That's very important. Um, well, um, as a king priest, again, I was mentioning it's not okay to have a Jewish king also be the priest. That was denied to Hezekiah and he, when he attempted it. But Jesus, according to Revelation, is just that. He's the king and the priest. It actually brings it up in a few places, but I'll show you Revelation because that's what we've been studying, and that's easy right now. Revelation 1.6 says, And he has made us to be, and that's us, he's made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the king and the high priest, and he has made us part of his kingdom, and he has made us to be priests under his priesthood, under his high priesthood. That's a fascinating thought. And if you think it was a coincidence that it was worded that way, well, Rev Revelations 5.10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom of pri and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It even puts it into the millennial kingdom con context. There will be a millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, and his priests will be reigning with him. At that time, we will be part of the kingdom. See, the millennium, millennial kingdom is the promise actually to Israel. Israel is waiting for their king. Israel is waiting for the earthly promises to be fulfilled. But we're going to get in on it as well, alongside of Christ as priest and as part of his kingdom. Revelations 20, right at the end, Revelations 20, verse 6, says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no powers, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this gets repeated enough times that it's not a coincidence. This is what is expected. Priest, king, he's both. He fits both, both, uh, uh, both roles 100%. Even though it was wrong for a jewish king to be a priest and yet here he is he will be a priest but according to what order it can't be according to the order of aaron or of levi and so it brings in the order of melchizedek this is why he's excited about this chapter about this passage um the order of melchizedek in verse 3 hebrews 7 3 it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides perpetually, or he abides a priest perpetually. And he's talking about Melchizedek, but it's a parallel to Christ. And it's true. In the case of Melchizedek, that's all the information we get in the Old Testament. What I read in Genesis, that's it. We don't know who his daddy was. We don't know who his granddaddy was. We don't have any of that information. We don't know what happened to his kingdom. We don't know what happened to his priesthood. It's just, it just flashed up. It was there. It happened. 
and then it disappeared. We didn't get any more than that. So what the author says, well, that makes him basically no lineage, no beginning, no end. Well, see, but it's a semantics game. There's no written beginning of Melchizedek, and there's no written end of Melchizedek. And based on that argument, it's kind of an argument of silence, he says, well, that's kind of like being eternal. That's kind of like Jesus Christ. Does Jesus have a beginning? Oh, yeah, he was born. Or was he? Did he have a previous beginning to that? And then we have an eternal eternity past. And Jesus is a mystery too, isn't he? He has an eternity past, and he has a day of birth. That's an interesting concept. But then you see Jesus, and you say, well, he, he died. Oh, but he's still alive. Wait. How long is that going to go on? Well, that's an eternity. So he's an, Jesus Christ is the eternal priest. He's the only one that can fit that bill. Even Melchizedek, it's just kind of a semantics game that he was eternal, quote-unquote. But Jesus is truly eternal. No beginning, no end. So that's the other point that he wants to make in this, in this uh, set here. So like the Son of God is what he says about Melchizedek, but that's just, that's the parallel. There is one Son of God, and those who believe in him become sons of God through faith in him. So the greatness of Melchizedek, beginning in verse 5, and I'll start reading this again so we can, uh, verse 4, so we can start refreshing this, is now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren. Although these are descendants from Abraham, but on, sorry, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, in other words, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. And, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is written that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Again, some, some fun ways of, of interpreting the text. But he's making some pretty interesting points along the way. He wants you to notice the greatness of Melchizedek. That's the big point. That's the bold point. How much greater or how great was Melchizedek? And he's going to compare him straight to Abraham and say, Abraham's your great father, isn't he? If you're, if you're a Jew, if you're a Hebrew, Abraham's your great father. He, must, he has to be the greatest one in all of society because he's, he's, he's the patriarch. He's the patriarch of the patriarchs. He's a grand old guy. And he says, but Melchizedek was greater. He says, how do I know? There's two reasons, he says. One is, well, first of all, he gave tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham gave 10%, a tithe, the cream of the crop, the best off the top. He turned it over to Melchizedek as a tithe, as an offering. And you certainly don't do that unless there's a gun to your head. 
unless the government is imposing taxation. But this is, this is something that he willingly did. He meets the guy, he finds out his name, finds out who he is. He's not his king. He's the king of some other nation. But he says, give him a tenth. Right off the top. And remember, this is the moment in Abraham's life when he is the hero. Abraham wasn't a hero for much of his life. There was a lot of embarrassing moments in Abraham's lives. A lot of mistakes. But this is the time when he did it all right. He got it all just right on and he come, came back the grand hero. He just conquered five kings. He's the big guy. And he gives off the top, 10%. Now who's bigger? It's a strange thing to do. But he's declaring it's an admission that Melchizedek is bigger, deserves this. He didn't go to battle. Yeah, but he deserves this. Gave him the tenth. And not only that, um, he makes the argument that within Abraham, within grand old father Abraham, all the tribes were present, biologically you could say. All the tribes were present in Abraham, and they too gave a tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham because he deserved it. Uh, to Melchizedek because he deserved it. So he's, he's trying to put out a pretty powerful argument uh, in this regard, and I think we'll hear some more of the greatness of Melchizedek. But then there's a second point, and that's the blessing. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, not the other way around. Not Abraham saying, oh, here's a tithe. Let me bless you with this tithe. Melchizedek receives the tithe, then turns around to Abraham, and I don't know how this goes, but you can kind of picture Abraham takes a knee, and Melchizedek is going to bless Abraham. So, so who's greater now? The guy that's doing the blessing is greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, blessing him. The pronouncing of the blessing, and, and I was just looking at it, and I thought, what is that blessing all about? And it's written out, as much as we know of it. It's written out, and at the very end, you see what it says? In all of Abraham's greatness, he's reminded, stay humble, Abraham, stay humble. <laughs> That's the blessing, essentially. I mean, what other blessing is there? He's just calling upon the God Most High, the God Most High, and then it says, he gave you the victory, so stay humble. Don't assume that your greatness took out those five kings. Stay humble, Abraham. Stay humble. That was the blessing. And that was maybe a very appropriate blessing um, at that time. Oh, Hebrews changed page on me. There we go. So, um, I was just thought of this are there other kinds of priests or likenesses culturally of melchizedek time and place contemporaries and I, I i was able to think of a couple of them i don't know if they really relate as as great examples in any way uh, one was jethro you know jethro was a priest of midian and he also worshiped the god most high it seems like there was uh, Noahic culture still circulating. Not everyone had gone for the Babylonian deception and the uh, and the uh, Nimrod kingdom, uh, globalist kingdom. 
that he was trying to, to impose. So it seems like some kept a cultural awareness of the God Most High. And, and Jethro seems a likely character. He was a priest of Midian. Um, there was one other person that they met along the way, uh, an unfortunate character, but he was a prophet of the God Most High. And when he prophesied, it was, it was, it was right on because he spoke on behalf of the God Most High. He was, he was, a, he was kind of a, a salty character, though. Uh, Balaam. He was a priest of God Most High. And God Most High certainly had some words with him. In fact, he wasn't listening, so he, he got a donkey to talk to him. You recall the story. But there seems to have been an awareness of the God Most High outside of Abraham and his family lineage. There was still some spot, some cultural awareness. Uh, interesting thought. He, of course, Balaam had some misguided priorities uh, involved. So he becomes, a, he becomes a false prophet to us as an example of a false prophet in the New Testament, if you read Jude or some of the other books. Anyways, here's my problem. I can't go on any farther because I'll be stealing somebody else's thunder. I want to wrap it up, but how do I do that? What are our lessons? So let me just really quick bullet point through what lessons will be uh, for Israel or some things that Israel could look at Melchizedek and then think ahead on. Okay? Some interpretations for the Hebrew Christians of the time. Remember the Hebrew Christians. The Hebrew Christians are afraid of a few things. One of the things they're afraid of is losing their culture. You guys remember the story of the, of the blind man who was healed by Jesus. And then the Pharisees got a hold of him. And the Pharisee says, Ah, oh, you weren't really blind, were you? He says, Yeah, I was blind. Now I can see. He says, No, 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 no. We don't believe you. Call your parents. So they call the parents in. And the parents come in and they say, Well, yeah, he's our son. Uh, yeah, he was born blind. Uh, we don't know how he's healed. And it says, and the text there, that's in John chapter, let's see, I'll find it here. John chapter 9, verse 22, it's kind of sad. His parents answered and says, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor who opened his eyes. We do not know. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. And this is the fear that all Hebrew believers have in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This was a real current fear to the Hebrew Jews of the time. They're afraid of losing their connection to Judaism. They're afraid of losing their connection to God. Culturally, they're the chosen people. If we accept Christ, we believe he's the Messiah, but, but what about, what about our, our, our religious life? How do we continue to connect to God? Again, it, it's a big cultural transformation for them. They're losing a lot, in other words, if they walk away from the temple, from the priest, from Jewishness, and they're a little, they're a little scared. Rightly so, the threats have been made, and in fact, this uh, man who was healed was cast out of the temple. So there were legitimate fears, and when, when Hebrews here is talking to the, uh, when the author is talking to the Hebrews, 
he wants to explain. He wants to resolve those fears so they can look through them, look past them, and say, yeah, there may be consequences. But we're talking about the real priest, the real king, the real Messiah. He's totally legitimate. You have not believed in vain. That's the message of the Jews. Um, another thought is Jesus is better than the previous system. And that'll be coming up in the next lesson. The priesthood, according to Aaron, had its limitations, had its flaws. But the priesthood, according to Melchizedek, as little as we know about it, seems like a better order, a better start, a fresh start with a better priest, with a better sacrifice. And that'll come up in the next lessons. Another idea I had, and I think it would apply well to the Jewish uh, to the Jewish scenario is the great father Abraham, the great patriarch, was able to recognize a picture of Jesus in Melchizedek. When he met Melchizedek, he was able to recognize a type of Christ. That's pretty cool. That's pretty neat to think that your great-great-granddaddy met someone that says, man, this guy looks like my savior, my king, my priest. I'm willing to give him a tithe. I'm willing to be blessed by him. So there, there's something really neat in that picture. He was able to worship God through the priesthood of Melchizedek. He took advantage of Melchizedek as a priest and says, I want to worship God through your priesthood. And he did. And he did. Um, what are our lessons now? Those are great for the Jews. But I'm kind of hunting around here for lessons that we can take away. And I thought of a couple of thoughts. Um, one is recognizing Jesus like Abraham did. How good are we at recognizing Christ? Or recognizing Christ-likeness? Are we, are we good at this? How well do we know Christ? Because this would imply that you, you're, you're fairly aware of what your Christ, your Messiah, your your king your priest looks like so will we be able to recognize christ likeness in others will we be able to recognize christ in different situations or would we say man i got here all by myself i won my own battles i'm gonna let pride rule the day it'll take some humility it'll take some information for us to be able to recognize christ christ and worship and worship and another thought and it does tie in with the jewish lesson the the lesson to the hebrews is turning back or looking forward a lot of us decry and say man it was better in the old days man it was good boy we had solved all these problems and it all kind of you know as as the saying goes went to hell in a handbasket too bad it was so much better before. Well, it's a daily choice of how we live. When we look forward, we shouldn't be looking forward just to better days. We shouldn't be looking forward just to solve our problems. That's kind of what humanism does. We assume that humanity is going to solve our own problems. Well, we figured that that failed. If you didn't figure that out, live a little longer, and you'll figure out that humanity has, has indeed failed. All right? Humanity is not going to solve the problem. They're just going to convolute them. 
What's got, what do we look forward to? And that was a great study we had in, in Revelation, but look forward to Christ. Look forward to the king priest. Look forward to meeting Christ. There were some great songs that we sang um, before the service. And looking forward to Christ. What a great thing. But what do we do if we look forward to Christ? I'm going to read one more verse, and you're never supposed to do this in an application. Never read verses when you're given the application, but 1 John 3, 3 says this, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So if you have your hope fixed on Christ, the result of that hope is to work on your character, work on your life, purify yourself. If you really believe that Christ, your king and priest, is going to come and call you home, then you've got some work to do. Purify your lives, work on the character, and get ready to meet the king. Thank you. Shall we close in prayer? All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, your word, the excitement that the author of Hebrews has as he brings this, this topic up, and we pray that we would be able to share and understand his excitement as we look forward to some of the lessons that he wants to teach in the next portion. Uh, pray for us today, Lord, as we put our eyes on Jesus, fix on you, and turn inside and say, man, am I ready to meet Christ? Am I ready to meet the King? We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.